I'm Larry Barsh, and you are listening to Specifically for Seniors, the podcast for those of us in the Remember When generation. It's Earth Day 2022. Three specials will appear on Disney Plus that will highlight the wonders of our planet and the dangers that it faces. One of the specials is called Explorer, The Last Tapui. This special features a trip to the rainforests of Guyana to make an ascent up Mount Wiasapu, based around biologist Bruce Means' work to discover what frogs live on and around the Tapui. We are privileged today to have as our guest on Specifically for Seniors, Dr. Bruce Means. Dr. Means is President Emeritus of the Coastal Plains Institute and Land Conservancy and adjunct full professor in the Department of Biological Science, Florida State University. A field ecologist with more than 50 years experience His main research interests center on fire ecology, longleaf pine ecosystems, tropical biology, tapui ecology, biogeography, pond ecology, amphibians and reptiles, and rare and endangered species. His researches have helped bring attention to the southeastern United States coastal plain as one of the world's top 35 biodiversity hotspots. Welcome to Specifically for Seniors, Bruce. Pleasure. Glad to be here, since I am a senior. (laughs) Uh, How old are you, if I can ask? 81. Uh, You recently had a birthday. Yes, March 9th, right. Congratulations. Thank you. Welcome to those of us who don't need pediatricians anymore. <laughs> so, because most of our listeners don't know what a tapui is, can you describe one? Of course. Very simple. It's a mesa. Mesas are high table mountains that are formed when a, a landscape rises up by tectonic events and rivers begin to erode the intervening land leaving pieces of this ancient landscape isolated on top of table mountains. Very simple. The ones I've been studying are the tallest and the most abundant in the world. And those are the ones in Guyana? Uh, Both Guyana, uh, Brazil, and especially Venezuela, right on the border of all three countries. The most recent trip you've taken must have taken more than a little planning and quite a team. Oh, for sure. Yeah. The uh, Mark Sennett is one of the, is a climber. And he and I had done previous expeditions to this particular area. And he had climbed Mount Roraima's cliff, which is about 1,500 feet. And I, uh, as the biologist on those expeditions, had explored all of the surrounding cloud forests at the base of the cliffs and on the slopes of these beautiful mesas. What hadn't happened was uh, I hadn't explored the other side of the valley, which had this other smaller tapui called Wyasapu. 
So to complete my scientific work, Mark and I dreamed up this expedition, presented it to Nat Geo, which he is a, is a writer for, and I've had grants from, and they bought it. So then we uh, engaged in the expedition, and he he brought along uh, Alex Honold, who is a very famous, you know, the most famous cliff cliff climber in the world, because he free soloed El Capitan, and the whole idea originally was to haul my carcass up this cliff <laughs> i'm not a cliff climber but uh it was going to be part of the video and uh, you'll see that uh my 80 year old legs kind of gave out on me <laughs> what's the trip like getting through a cloud forest uh well from you know I i'm biased i love those kinds of habitats so i've been mucking around in them for 50 years practically they're um, they're scrubby, usually. All the trees can be up to uh, even sixty feet tall, but there's an understory of vegetation uh, of uh, smaller trees and shrubs, and the entire environment is festooned with uh, what are called epiphytes, mosses, bromeliads, orchids, all kinds of other plants that grow on the stems, the boles of all the bushes and trees and the leaves. And all over on the ground, so it's uh, and it's and it's misty all the time because it's in fairly high altitude between four and seven thousand feet. That's where it's uh, you know the clouds uh, form a lot, and it's it's either raining or misty in these environments all the time. I love them; they're uh, just uh, fabulous habitats, and they're not very poorly explored because they're scattered around on the planet. They're few and far between, and they're hard to get to. I heard one podcast that you did where you described the sounds or the lack of sounds right. around the base of a tapui that was absolutely fascinating. Can you describe it for us? Yes. Uh, you know, the tropics have seasonal weather patterns that are either rainy seasons or dry seasons, but it, you know, it, it rains a lot in the dry season and sometimes it's dry and wet, but, the difference, the reason I brought that up is that in the rainy season, you get a lot of frogs calling. So you'll hear peeps and squeaks, uh, not any really, well, uh, if there's a stream nearby, uh, you can hear some louder frog calls. But at and during the, most of the time, let's say nine months of the year, it's very silent in uh, those environments, very peaceful, calming. And I just like to sit and absorb the, I, I hope you can hear me, but I've lowered my voice so you get the idea of just how magical these places are. It, it must be quite an experience. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I, uh, I, I've actually written a book about, uh, it's not published yet, but it's a, it's a narrative of all my field work on Tapuis in Guyana. And I, I keep a daily journal in which I very meticulously record my feelings and my thoughts and all that. And hopefully if this book gets published, uh, it will be a way that uh, readers can maybe get a slight, um, what would you say, feeling or understanding of what, what we're talking about. How will people know when this book comes out? 
Well, I have a Facebook site, which I would post that on, and it would come out and it'd be available on Amazon.com. All my books are are, are sold and listed through Amazon, uh, Amazon Books. So uh, the title of it is Tepui, colon, A Naturalist in Shangri-La. Oh. <laughs> what, what can I say? Um uh, what is your Facebook page for people who want to visit? Just Bruce Means. I guess you put that in Facebook, Bruce Means, and it'll pull it right up. Okay. Um, now, you visited the Tapui basically to study frogs. Well, no, actually to study the uh, herpetofauna, which is amphibians and reptiles. Frogs, lizards, salamanders. Well, there aren't any salamanders there, but uh, snakes. Uh, but the frogs take the largest uh, share of attention because um, in the in the tropics, New World tropics especially, it's very very difficult to encounter a snake. Mo even though South America and Central America are full of all kinds of species of snakes, the individual abundances of them are quite low compared to up here in the temperate zone. And also they're secretive. So to study snakes just takes an inordinate amount of effort and time, which most you know biologists and most funding agencies don't have. Um, however, at night, frogs come out and they sit on leaves, they sit on the ground, they hang on branches. And you can very um, carefully just take a step at a time and stop with a headlight and look around and spot frogs doing various things, sitting, usually waiting on a butterfly or a moth or something to come by. So frogs are the animal that you most encounter in a tropical environment. And that's why I've focused on frogs, although I collect the other animals as well and do research with them when I find them. This trip's a good example. There were Maybe, well, let's see, in a whole month or five weeks, all of the people that uh, we had porters, Amerindian porters, whom I paid a dollar per every animal, they, every specimen they bring me, um, we only encountered like five snakes. Hmm. <laughs> and uh, fortunately, one of them seems to be new to science, but, uh, but we encountered maybe 300 frogs as a comparison. Were you looking for a special frog? Um, there is a group of frogs uh, in a family, a special family of, uh, that uh, they lay their big eggs on the back. The female extrudes an egg and the male swipes it up underneath the two of them and it gets glued to the, her back. And the eggs go through their entire development and, and bypass the tadpole stage and hatch into little froglets that when you happen to find them right after they've hatched, they're all, they're all glued to mama's back till they jump off one at a time. That's a very important group. It's only found on and among tapuis in South America, where I've been. And it looks like um, their evolutionary radiation, their act, evolutionary activity over time can tell us an awful lot about how the tapuis have been connected, how long they've been separated, and we, because we can, using DNA, we can determine how, how distantly, how long it's been since uh, a couple of them shared a common ancestor.
And so if we're looking at a series of 20 or 30 of these frogs, which seems to be the case, we can develop an entire evolutionary uh, story about how they uh, got isolated on each tapui and how long it's been since they've uh, diverged from each other. So I would imagine that the ones on top of a tapui, as opposed to the ones at the base, are different? Oh, yes, absolutely. And those on the, well, they're different because uh, in, in the tropics especially, uh, climate changes with elevation. Oh, it does everywhere else. But there, uh, because let's say uh, an animal, a frog, or even a plant that lives at 5,000 feet elevation in the tropics, the temperature and the rainfall pattern, humidity, they don't change year-round. You know, like uh, it may be 80 in the daytime or 85 and 65 at night year-round. So animals become adapted to that, that uh, let's say, thermal regime. And if climate changes and that thermal regime moves upslope, those animals have to move with it to stay in their comfort zone. Whereas in the temperate zone up here where we live, you know, you get winters with snow, you'll get the freezing temperatures. In the summer, you might get 100-degree temperatures. And animals have to be adapted for that physiologically so that up here, uh, differences in elevation are not nearly as strong in terms of species uh, being restricted to certain elevational zones as in the tropics. So uh, that's one of the things I study is the change over elevations and things on the tops of tapuis are very different from those at the base of the cliffs, mm -hmm. which is only like a thousand feet. And then you go down a thousand feet, you get another suite of animals. And likewise, as you keep going down or up, depending. So it's almost like a uh, geological progression up the side of a tupui? Well, a climatological pro progression. The geology. Uh, right. On these particular tupuis, the geology is the same, whether you're low or high, because it's all sandstone, uh, hard, hard sandstone. If, uh, if it were an environment where, you know, there was different kinds of rocks or geology, then that would play somewhat as well, depending on, you know, uh, soils are made from the parent materials, geological materials underlying them. So soils could be more acidic if they were created by granites or more basic uh, if they were created by limestones, etc. Now, most of these frogs have a secretion. Yes. Some of it is poisonous. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, in fact, all of them are not. Let's let's use the word noxious. Um, the purpose of that, of course, is to uh, deter predators. Uh, if and, and and as a mammal, which I am, it, what I do when I catch a frog is I've not seen before. I smell it and I'll lick its skin to see what the what the skin secretion does. Of course, I spit that out. But uh, it gives me the same idea of what, a, let's say, a raccoon or a, a bird or any other kind of uh, vertebrate animal that might be a predator would experience. Um, here's a, if you'll let me expound a little bit, this is a really fabulous story. The frogs do not manufacture the toxic materials themselves. They sequester it, meaning they get it. 
from the insects or the invertebrate animals they eat. Now, the invertebrate animals get it from the plants they eat. The plants originally manufacture these secondary compounds that are noxious to insects that eat the plants. Over time, the insects, be, some insects, become tolerant, resistant to those toxins. And over a long evolutionary time, interestingly, some of those insects are able to sequester, in other words, take those toxins and store them in glands or other uh, places in their body. So the insect can use the material the plant created to keep its predators from eating it. And then you get that same step goes to the frogs who eat the insects. And eventually some of those frogs develop a resistance to that. And furthermore, they then physiologically, and we don't know all the mechanisms yet that, that, that this that caused this to happen, but it's a fabulous evolutionary story. Those toxins then are, are, are accumulated in the bloodstream from the stomach and deposited in skin glands of the frogs. And then when a, like me or a raccoon or whomever, whatever else happens to bite or eat a frog, you get this nasty taste and you can smell this bad odor. You usually survive that. And then the next time you happen to see one of these animals, if it was multiple, you know, uh, sometimes they're also, they also come with bright coloration. So the bright coloration will tell you, wait a minute, the last time I ate one of those, it was terrible. Or if you if they're not brightly colored, then they have that odor. So if they got if the predator goes to eat the animal and it smells that odor, wait a minute, last time I ate that thing, I had to throw up for three hours. So <laughs> it's a wonderful evolutionary story, and that's going on on these tapuis I've been studying. I think I have a frog, a fairly big tree frog, that eats smaller frogs. And it sequesters their toxins to make its toxin way more powerful. I grabbed one of those frogs to collect it, and my hands started tingling, or you know, I started getting numbness in my hands. I, I might have had tiny little cuts I didn't know about, uh, but it uh, was very, very powerful. And when I tasted it, I thought, "Whoa, th this is too much." I do know there are some uh, dart poison frogs. Uh, that uh, are so dangerously toxic that if you eat one of those, it'll kill you. And I don't understand the evolutionary thing going on there because most of these things are dependent on, on the predator learning. You know, if you're going to kill the predator every time, then the next time a, a, a naive predator sees one of those things, it'll eat it and die from it. Is the environment around Tapuis in danger? Oh, for certain. Uh, everywhere on the planet is. I mean, let's face it. We have, what, 7.3 billion peoples on the, on the planet and, and predicted to have 11 billion in another 20 or 30 years. I mean, it's, it's the overwhelming um, demand for living space and raw materials that's eaten up everything on the planet. Unfortunately, the tapuis um, have diamonds in the sandstone. Uh, and uh, then there are intrusions of uh, hot water uh, over the eons up into the center of some of them. So there is also gold. That's how gold is deposited in, in hydrothermal um, activity. Uh, 
and then of course, uh, well, all the surrounding um, Guyana is very fortunate because a large percentage of Guyana is virgin rainforest, and it's being cut down left and right for the money that's in, in the trees. You know, as uh, the populations of various countries uh, continue to grow, and they're growing in Guyana as well as everywhere else, there's going to be more and more demand for the goods and services that nature can provide. And uh, anyway, it's a, it's a bleak outlook. And if you don't follow the uh, carbon curve problem we have on this planet and global climate change, then you really got your head in the sand. Let's talk about the North American coastal plain that includes Florida. What's special about the area? Oh, it's wonderful. Um, about 70 million years ago, uh, the Appalachians, which were a lot higher than they are today, uh, as they began eroding, their sediments were brought down and put on top by rivers uh, uh, on top of the limestones that lay offshore uh, from a place called the Fall Line, which is about, oh, depending on where it is. Anyway, it's the boundary of the coastal plain and in, in the interior highlands of the east, southeastern United States. And over about 70 million years, those uh, sediments have created this sort of undulating plain called the coastal plain. And, and other parts of the world have coastal plains as well, but ours is quite large. And it turns out recently, I and, and, and colleagues have recognized the coastal plain of the southeastern United States as one of the 35 top biodiversity hotspots in the entire world. And the reason for that is that uh, the underlying sediments, which are simply sand and clay, once in a while some little pebbles, uh, that is the, uh, the, the that forms a soil of the coastal plain. And uh, because the coastal plain expand, uh, goes from uh, Virginia and, and Long Island all the way down to Mexico and even includes parts of Mexico, it transverses on uh, different latitudinal areas and the big rivers that cut through it, the Savannah, the Apalachicola, the um, Mobile Tensaw system and all that create barriers for species moving east and west. And therefore, over time, uh, the coastal plain has been the home of a lot of evolutionary activity producing animals and plants that are endemic and only found, which is what that means, in the coastal plain. Um, Florida is entirely in the coastal plain. Uh, some places in Florida, there are limestone outcrops, which is different from the sand and gravel I was just telling you about. The sandy soils are relatively inert or slightly acidic, uh, sandy clayey soils, but the uh, uh, soils created from limestone are basic calcareous soils, you know, and those are very, those very different soils have very different plant responses. So different ecosystems occur on those. And then you get down into, you know, wetlands, the coastal plain is full because it's relatively low lying. It's full of wetland environments and wetlands are just great evolutionary theaters of, of speciation. So uh, the coastal plain is uh, a wonderful place. And, and Florida, like South Florida, is very different from North Florida and uh, North Peninsular Florida. And all of the peninsula is different from the panhandle. Panhandle of Florida is a very biologically rich place. 
What are the specific problems we're facing in Southern Florida? Well, water problems, uh, pollution problems. Um, you know, if if you look at a uh, at a Google Earth map, you'll see that all of the coastline of Flo of South Florida, from Homestead all the way up to well, all the way up the coast actually. There used to be a rockland called the, the, the Slash Pine Rockland area that is completely now uh, eliminated. There only, there's only a few hundred acres of that kind of habitat left in the world. It's in Everglades National Park, and all the rest of that rockland has all been converted to concrete and asphalt and homes. Uh, there, there was some agriculture at one point. I think that's slowly diminishing as well, but... Uh, like all kinds of organisms uh, that used to be their natural one, just take the indigo snake, for instance, which I'm familiar with, used to be very common in that whole area. It's gone completely. Uh, I don't think there's a record for an indigo snake in the, the whole part of Southeast uh, Peninsula for many years. But then we have the problem of South Florida being in sort of um, it's not tropical, it's subtropical sort of climate, but it's conducive to, alien species invading it my gosh we now have well over 50 species of just amphibians and reptiles that have from other parts of the world that have become naturalized down that the best example of which of course is the burmese python which has basically taken over the ecology of the everglades uh so you want me to go on <laughs> you're 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 answering my questions before i get a chance to ask them uh I was going to ask you about the effect first of habitat destruction and then invasive species. Uh, well, look, I uh, know the agricultural reserve is getting built up uh, with some land swap things by right. certain builders. Uh, we we seem to be overusing pesticides so that insect population is down so that amphibian population is down so that bird population is different. I know we lived in Florida 15, 18 years ago, and every year we'd have these massive migrations of sandhill cranes, which don't seem to be around anymore. Well, we can go on and on and on. The list is as, as long. I've been in Florida 60 years. I came here from Alaska where I was raised and fell in love with North Florida. And I've been doing my research. My, you know, although I'm an expert on tapuis, it's the coastal plain and especially Florida and, and, and North Florida, is, you know, more than anything, is my main bailiwick. And I've been studying it for all this time and publishing on its uh, biodiversity. Let me tell you what's wrong or what's bad about habitat destruction and, and alteration. Animals and plants uh, evolve together, a, a group uh, in a community that composed of, their, of them, their populations. And so if you alter that by concrete or just a, a field, a, a pasture that's got two or three or five or 10 species in it, whereas the previous environment had 100 or 200 species of plants and animals, then you're losing biodiversity. Biodiversity is hugely important on this planet. 
to us as well as to the whole workings of the planet. And it's the one thing we can't afford to lose in the long run. A uh, good example of that, of telling you that, is the uh, um, there have been several experiments to make biologically contained environments, bio, uh, what do they call it? Bio, um, biohabitat. Biohabitat bio of sort. And uh, they none of them work. No matter how many animals and plants they put in these large enclosures, uh, they, they, they failed. So the point is that uh, at, at, they failed because there wasn't enough plants and animals interacting with the oxygen and the water to make a self-sustaining environment for very long, for more than a year or so. So the point is, uh, what does it take on this planet, which is itself an enclosed environment? Uh, what, uh, how, how, how many of the species that we're causing to become extinct can we afford to lose before the planet suffers from uh, the problems with losing the species richness of the planet? All right. There's, I hate to use this example, but these animals and plants are directly valuable to us. Where do we get our clothing? Where do we get our food? Where do we get our medicines? From other creatures, largely. We don't just go out in the ground and dig up some food, you know, and eat rocks. We get it from the plants that do that for us, and then the animals that eat the plants. So biodiversity is hugely important to us directly in terms of the goods and services they provide animals and plants provide for us so that's why habitat loss and destruction is over time the more of it that we perpetrate on the planet the more difficult it's going to be for us uh, it's another phenomenon maybe maybe not as as insidious and immediate as global climate change due to carbon dioxide buildup in the atmosphere but it is another one of these factors that will have a direct effect on us in the future. <sighs> <laughs> well, you asked. Well, oh, know. yeah. Uh, as a dog owner, who's sitting right in back of me, being very quiet, nicely, I and many of my neighbors are concerned about the increase in population of the cane toads. Is there anything we can do about that? Is there any way to control them? Not really. I mean, it's just like the Burmese python. They are so firmly in, in, ensconced in the Everglades, those pythons. You know, you can kill as many and try to harvest as many as you can. But And the cane toads are the same way. They're extremely... Um, Oh, well, they're, they're adaptable. They're, they're, they're a, a good weed animal, for instance, you know, a weed is an organism that, that can survive and produce huge amounts of, uh, out, have great reproductive output and, uh, handle all kinds of different adverse situations in nature. Well, that's what the cane toad does and how to get rid of the cane toad. Nah. Yeah. I mean, first off, it, they, they have thousands of tadpoles when they lay eggs. So for then if you got rid of all the adult toads, what would you do with all those tadpoles that are going to become toads shortly? It, it, it's over with as far as getting rid of it. Australia is a good example. They got loose in Australia, completely taken over the whole damn continent and wiped out an awful lot of the native animals in Australia, by the way. You know that story? 
Hmm? Do, you know, do you know about the Australia cane toad problem? No. Well, if you want to know how bad it is here, go read about Australia. Fortunately, maybe our temperate climate here in Florida and in the southeastern United States, as you get further north, the temperature seems to be a uh, limiting factor in the distribution or the uh, expansion of the range of a lot of these alien creatures. But uh, but as far as South Florida goes, we're going to have to get used to them, that's all. Well, I, I yeah, we talked a, a minute ago about uh, the what I see is the overuse of some of these pesticides and plant control chemicals in, oh, yeah. in these isolated communities. Well, I hate to, I, you know, all my stories are sort of negative ones. I mean, I have some good ones too, but years ago when I did my doctoral and master's research up here in the panhandle, I studied a salamander that was the most abundant salamander in the wetland environments all over the panhandle, especially the swampy, mucky, low-lying places. And about 1972 to 1975, after I'd done my research and I'd, I'd studied, you know, maybe two, 300 localities for this animal, all of a sudden I couldn't find them anymore. And to this day, they've disappeared, except in one or two small places that we know about. This species, and, and also in Georgia and elsewhere where this animal used to occur, it's completely gone in habitats where it was, I could go out and see 10 or 20 of them in an hour, hour and a half effort. And now I and graduate students that I've, I've got who do this kind of work, we don't find them at all. We don't know what the reason is. It is likely to be a pathogen. And we've been trying to study what kind of disease organisms could be at, at, uh, uh, at work here. But, uh, but on the other hand, it could be what you're talking about. We spray chemicals so much around in nature that gosh knows what might be working into the water that these animals utilize and live in that has caused their decline. Uh, you know, we spray for mosquitoes like mad. That's been going on for more than half a century. Um, interestingly, the two national forests where there are some limited populations left of the, it's called the Southern Dusky Salamander. Uh, that's where I've, I still can find a couple, couple of these populations. Uh, they did not permit spraying. Now, you know, that... <laughs> That is not proof of cause and effect. It's a coincidence, maybe, but it might be telling in, in the long run as well that uh, not just that, but all the agricultural pesticides and herbicides and all the other things that we put in nature uh, are contaminating our waterways tremendously. And, and the change has been recent. Uh, just in the decade and a half that we moved from Florida elsewhere and back to Florida, uh, the change in, in the degree and amount of pesticide use and uh, plant control sprays has increased tremendously. Oh, yeah. Um, well, look what we do to our garden, our lawns. You know, if you have a lawn, you, well, uh, no, one of the big polluting things is not just bad chemicals. It's uh, nutrification. 
by uh, enriching with fertilizers uh, our soils, and that runs off as nit nitrogen and phosphorus, which tremendously eutrophicate, mean increase the richness of the waterways, which cause huge algal blooms, which cause tremendous uh, problems with polluting our water supply. And we know that all you have to do is look at the records of any municipality where they generate water from wells and, and have been keeping records for the, the nitrogen and the phosphorus and other chemical loadings of those water. You'll see over time that all these bad things have increased uh, to the present day by overuse of these chemicals. <laughs> so what are you going to do? I have two final questions. <laughs> uh, very simple to answer, he says sarcastically. How can we in our generation help preserve the biodiversity here and leave this world as a beautiful, healthy place for our children and grandchildren? <laughs> no. <laughs> I didn't you're gonna, say it. <laughs> you're gonna say it. <laughs> no, I, look, all we can do is do the best we can do. We can become informed for one thing. And that's what you're doing here. You know, learn about the problems. Don't deny them. And then you can do things about, you know, you can recycle things like all of our plastic waste and other things that we might in the future decide we can recycle. Remember, we, we kind of slowed down the ozone problem by getting rid of certain gases that affected the ozone layer. Well, if we can do that, we certainly can do other things as well. Uh, if we can, uh, you know, uh, wean ourselves off of carbon-based fuels, you know, like natural gas and petroleum, that was very helpful. So anything and everything that an individual can do, it's got to be done on the individual level. I mean, you can't do it governmentally. You know, that's not, we don't, well, yeah, I wouldn't like to live in China or Russia. Let's put it that way. And we live in this country and we better be careful so we can still live the way we have been. But uh, there's your there's your answer to that question. Anything and everything a given individual can do to kind of uh, learn what the problems are, be concerned about them, and do whatever an individual can do to help, to help take care of the problem. One final question. What keeps you up at night? L-I-F-E. When I wake up in the morning and I'm not in the obituaries, I got a whole nother day ahead of me. <laughs> I mean, look, after all, it is a planet of vibrant, uh, functioning life. And no matter what we do to it and to us, it is going to survive us. So from the, on the larger view, I don't have a problem. On the smaller view, what's going to happen in the next 50 years or so to my grandkids and my, my kids, if they live that long, is not a, not a, happy prospect i wouldn't think in my mind anyway but still every day is a hey you know uh, i gotta tell you i am not a religious man but and it, and if everything disappears when i finally close my eyes for the last time i had paradise while i was alive i was living and knowing i was alive and if i don't take every advantage of that carpe diem, then I had a gift that I threw away. <laughs> so uh, I live day by day 
moment by moment and appreciate everything that fortune and life has given me. Thank you, Bruce. My- this this has been, I, I what can I say? This has been astounding. Thank you so much for being on specifically for seniors. Well, thank you very much. It's been my great pleasure. And just remember, if you're 80 or older or up in that area, keep on keeping on. We keep trying. Society, but you know what? It's time we realize that we older, older folks uh, are just as vibrant as anybody else, especially right up here, right? This has been fantastic. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you again. My pleasure. If you found this podcast interesting, fun, or helpful, we'd appreciate it if you tell your friends and family and click on the follow or subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, I'm Larry Barsh, and you've been listening to Specifically for Seniors.